Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, everyone, and welcome to AOA. Thanks for making us a part of your day here on this Tuesday, April 26th. We've got a lot coming on today's show. In segment two, we're going to talk inflation, but we're specifically going to talk about the impact of input price hikes on our dairy-producing friends. That sector, similar to cattle feeding, similar to hog production, they have seen squeezed margins as input prices have continued to climb. Tanner Emke, lead economist for dairy at CoBank, will be joining us in segment Segment two. And then in segment three, we're going to speak with Dr. Diana Furchgart Roth. She was President George W. Bush's chief economist at the Department of Labor. She's now a professor at the George Washington University in the economics department. She'll join us to take a look at the global economic picture and what could be happening with inflation as this year moves on. Well, speaking of inflation, that is, of course, the barometer for higher prices. And folks, we've got higher prices in the commodity markets today. To help make sense of what's going on, joining me now is Dwayne Bussey of Bolt Marketing up in Britain, South Dakota. Dwayne, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me, Mike. You know, you are up in South Dakota, Dwayne. We've been speaking about the weather that has hit North Dakota over the past two weeks. Give us an update on how things look out your rear window. When do you think folks will get in the field in your neck of the woods? Well, once the frost comes out, maybe we can talk about it. So, no, I'm I'm joking, but not really. I mean, it's darn cold. We we are freezing at night just a little bit. It warms up during the day just enough to make the yards uh, a muddy mess. So we got a little over an inch over the weekend. And, yeah, northeast South Dakota, we're you know, in between the, the really wet stuff in, in North Dakota and the really, really dry stuff in southeast South Dakota. So we're, we're on the wet side a little bit, hoping for some warmer weather. Um, hey, we're... I'd say two weeks from getting out in the field here, just by the time we, we dry up and uh, be able to get rolling. But it always feels that way when it's cloudy and gloomy out. You know, Maybe the sun comes out later, but I, I think we're expecting another inch of rain this weekend. That's why I'm saying about two weeks out for us. All right. A lot of moisture there from, from you guys, North Dakota, certainly we discussed yesterday, all the way through the eastern Corn Belt. Dwayne, one place that hasn't seen the moisture, as you mentioned, southeast South Dakota and all points to the south through the southern plains. That has hit the wheat crop. Wheat conditions continue to deteriorate. Dwayne, is that the factor that's driving this wheat market higher today? I sure think so. I, that's one of two. Yeah, the crop condition score came in at 27% good to excellent for the the Kansas City wheat crop, you could say, at the Southern Plains there, and that's one of the worst crop ratings we've ever seen. The average is around 50% good to excellent this time of year. So, yes, that crop is very dry and very poor condition. The other factor is the the war in Ukraine. Um, I know that's getting to be an old story in these markets. You know, we always like a new, fresh story to keep the bull running, but Russia's really you know, forcing the attack in the southern parts of Ukraine where, like, you know, you got ports of Odessa and that. So, even if the war would end tomorrow, there's going to be a tough time for Ukraine to get these goods out, the wheat crop out of the country because of the damage that's being done to the ports this week. So I, I think we have enough bullish story in those two stories to really get back above $12 for Kansas City wheat. So I look for that market to trend, continue to trend higher this week, let's say. Dwayne, as we think about that wheat market specifically, I did notice when USDA reported export inspections, wheat export inspections are running about 20% behind this same period last year. Do you expect to see the Ukrainian-Russian war to bring wheat buyers actually back to the United States? <laughs> That's a good ultimate question. I it won't be for quite a while. Yeah, actually, we are rationing demand with these higher prices. And right now, the futures market thinks that that's just completely fine because we're going to have a smaller crop out of the Ukraine, right? But but you're right. The rest of the world, the buyers will buy from everyone else other than us. We're about the most expensive wheat out there. So sadly, that's just that's just economics and how it works. It's all about you know, come this fall, you know, they may have to come and buy wheat from us. I think the futures market rallies here in the short term on this scare. I don't know if they will be buying a ton more wheat from us. Yeah, I, I don't like seeing those export numbers as negative as they are. Dwayne, let's talk about the corn market here. New crop corn specifically, as you look at these potential planting delays starting to get closer, does this decrop crop have some room to run to the upside? 
I think it does yet this week. And then, you know, every week from there on forward is a, is a Sunday night look at the weather forecast to try to predict what you think prices are going to do for the week. Where, like you say, it's starting to get behind. I don't think you're going to see huge progress this week, even though some parts of the Midwest are drying out enough to go. Soil temps are pretty pretty cool yet, so there might be a lot of guys waiting until you know maybe next Monday and rolling in Illinois, Iowa. But I don't know, man. It's <laughs> that calendar makes me nervous. So, and I think it makes the market nervous too. So, yeah, getting back to trying to just answer your question. Yes, I think there's more upside here in corn. All right, old crop corn, Dwayne. Are you pulling the trigger on any bushels you've got stored yet, or are you going to wait and see what happens? Well, I, I hate to jinx it here, but I came within one tick. Uh, 810 is where I've got my sell order for, for my old crop corn. And that's, uh, I got 82% left and we're letting it all go at this price. If we can get back up there, but like I said, now I'm worried I'm going to jinx it. So, you know, last week and this week, I told guys it's time to be done with the old crop. Does that mean it, it can't go to $10? No. I mean, anything could happen, but it's the time of year seasonally where we usually make highs. And I just feel like it's, it's time to be done with it and let it go. And what a great price. Good Lord. I, I, I love to say I'm just a genius for holding this long. I think it might be a lot of luck, to be honest with you, Mike. <laughs> well, Dwayne, I'd rather be lucky than good uh, seven days a week. Let's take the same <laughs> question over on soybeans. On the new crop soybean side, we're trading at $15 today here, Dwayne. That's yeah. a nice round number. Where do you see us going from here? And are you locking in any new crop sales at this price point yet? We're not on the soybeans, actually. I, I think there's some upside, mainly because I think we're going to see an acre shift from soybeans back to corn when we get to June 30th. Or, and I think the futures market will talk about that during the spring, as long as, of course, the weather allows the corn market to be planted. So I'm sorry, a lot of ifs in there, like a good broker typically does. But I, I, and I also really like the soybean demand. You know, more export sales announcements this morning, mostly new crop. But, yeah, China's demand has been down. But, man, the... Their hog production is up 14% so far this year, so that's a lot of animal feed. I, I think we're underestimating the demand out of China. I think they're going to have to buy a lot of beans, maybe a little bit old crop, and a whole lot of new crops. So I, I think there's a good chance we can get to $16 on those no beans. All right, some opportunity there, Dwayne. On the bean side, we've been talking a lot about bean oil. Indonesia a few days ago said they're going to halt exports of processed bean oil or palm oil, rather, out of Indonesia. Today, they said they might totally ban raw palm oil exports. Dwayne, how much higher can this bean oil market run at record prices? You know, that's just it. The, the record prices concerns me. I'm not an expert in the bean oil or the really the veg oil market, but uh, so when, when you're not an expert, you, you find people who are and you listen to them. And they, they've been saying that, you know, you get around this $80 mark and, and we're going to start rationing some demand. So I don't know if we can go much higher. We're at $83 today. And yeah, this stories out of Indonesia, on again, off again, uh, export ban is, is quite confusing to follow, but typical futures market, it'll keep us good and volatile. But it I don't know. The market doesn't look toppy yet, but I just realized that these are some crazy high prices for these products. They certainly are crazy high prices, really up and down the commodity spectrum. Our thanks to Dwayne Bussey of Bolt Marketing for joining us today. Dwayne, we always appreciate your insight, sir. Yeah, anytime. Thanks, Mike. And folks, stick with us. Tanner Emke, lead economist for Dairy at the CoBank Knowledge Division, will be joining us in segment two. We're going to talk about just what these high commodity prices have done to our friends in the dairy sector. Stay with us here on AOA. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Smart stays on the road. That's why it's in your engine. Because you wouldn't settle for subpar performance. Cenex Maxtron synthetic diesel engine oils give you the smartest oil for the toughest conditions. These premium oils maintain 80% of their viscosity throughout the drain interval for superior engine performance across extreme temperatures. That horizon looks good with the competition behind you. Cenex Maxtron diesel engine oils. Oil that runs smart. Soil, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Soil Ship Enterprise to explore soil life, to boldly grow where cover crops have never grown before. 
Farmer's log, soil date 31655.4. We've come across some strange but incredibly helpful life forms. We didn't have to travel far to find them, but these organisms have proven invaluable on our trip through the solar system. They help feed us by nourishing and protecting our crops. They've built our soil structure to make it more resilient to the harsh weather we encounter. Our sensors indicate they're even helping us store carbon that plants take out of the atmosphere and put it back into the soil. Guess you can say our living and life-giving soil is the best thing to cling on to. Um, sorry. <laughs> That's soil fleet humor. <laughs> Visit your local USDA Natural Resources Conservation Service office today and learn more about the basics and benefits of soil health. This message brought to you by USDA and this radio station. Tough 5EC is a selective contact post-emergent herbicide that synergizes HPPD inhibitors and enhances the effect of atrazine. Tough 5EC works fast and can significantly improve the control of weeds such as water hemp, palmer, and kochia today and help prevent the selection of herbicide resistance tomorrow. Tough 5EC is in stock and ready to ship. Ask your local retailer about Tough 5EC or visit BelgiumUSA.com. Always read and follow label instructions. Vision loss is not something that you feel until it happens. Most people lose their vision from diseases like macular degeneration and glaucoma, not at birth. With macular degeneration, you lose your central vision. You have a blind spot right in the center of your face, so I can't actually see your face. So even that little circle in which I could see became a big blur. I was 65 when I first was diagnosed with glaucoma. There were no symptoms. I had no headaches. Three million Americans have glaucoma, and half don't even know it. 11 million people in the United States have macular degeneration. You lose mobility, independence, changes your entire life. So many eye disorders can be treated if caught early. My husband tells me that I have beautiful brown eyes, and I don't want to lose that. Make a plan today to get your eyes checked. Visit brightfocus.org to learn more. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Apologies, got distracted there by that fantastic bumper music. Thanks for tuning in to AOA today, ladies and gentlemen. We have been talking, it seems, for a year plus about the squeeze that these higher input prices have put on, well, folks up and down the value chain here in the ag industry. And one place that has really felt it is the livestock sector, whether it's pork, fat cattle, or dairy cattle, everyone has been impacted by this massive jump up in feed costs. Joining me today to help talk about specifically the impact of these higher prices in the dairy sector is Tanner Emke. He's the lead economist for dairy at the CoBank Knowledge Exchange Division, just wrote a quarterly update on this topic. Tanner, thank you so much for joining us today with you. Well, let's talk about this squeeze. Tanner, you mentioned in your commentary that high feed, high heifer prices, and labor costs have all been squeezing margins. Let's talk numbers. What did you see here over the first quarter in 2022 for America's dairy producers? Well, it's been a mixed bag. Uh, obviously, the cost side of the equation uh, continues to uh, really erode margins out there despite uh, historically high, record high milk prices. And uh, that's been the ongoing story here, as you mentioned, uh, that just doesn't seem to go away, especially on the feed side of things. You know, when you look at the dairy margin uh, pr uh, coverage program, uh, the numbers there for their final feed costs in February of this year, uh, feed is at uh, $13.72 a hundredweight. Now compare that to where we were a year ago, where it was $11.13 a hundredweight. That is a significant increase. It's over $2 a hundredweight increase uh, in just your feed costs. Now, as you mentioned, we've got labor costs. That's up 20%. Uh, we've got uh, fuel uh, costs, diesel and gasoline prices up phenomenally, as we all know. And uh, all of that is going to be cutting into the margin or, or other things, uh, just the re replacement cost of machinery on the farm, 
uh, if you want to replace that wheel loader, that skid loader, anything like that, uh, it's going to pr- probably cost you at least 20 30% more than it was last year. So uh, on the cost side of things, that has obviously been uh, a headwind to the dairy industry. Uh, and anyone who's uh, feeding uh, animals. Now, here's the positive note. <laughs> We've got some very high milk prices out there. Uh, we always need to find the silver lining here. And uh, there has been some response uh, some positive response with uh, producers out there. Uh, we've seen uh, an uptick here recently in month-over-month increase uh, in uh, dairy cow numbers in the U.S. Uh, now, that being said, we are still well below where we were a year ago, Mike. Uh, we're down uh, over 80,000 ahead uh, this month in March rather than uh, we were um, a year ago. So, um, some positive news there, you know, there are some producers uh, who are uh, taking this opportunity to expand, but I think uh, for the, by, for by and large, the majority of producers out there, the feed cost side of the equation is a real problem. And unfortunately, though, I, we don't see that these uh, costs coming down anytime soon. We've got some uh, struggles out there on uh, feed and forage production. Yeah, we certainly do. And I'm glad you touched on forage production there, Tanner. One of the concerns I'm hearing from folks all across the Corn Belt is that with these elevated commodity prices for grain and oil seeds, hay fields around the country are coming out and they're going into production this year. Looking at hay costs specifically, are you anticipating a price spike or elevated prices for the remainder of 2022? I think that's what you have to figure into your budget because uh, just look at USDA's uh, March, yeah, they're a March Perspective Planning's report, and they're forecasting over a, a reduction of over 400,000 hay acres uh, in the U.S. Uh, that's also a, re- a significant uh, reduction in corn acres, uh, as that's been well advertised, uh, as uh, more and more acres move over to soybeans uh, to support uh, the, re- the renewable diesel program and also because of uh, soybeans' uh, cheaper fertility budget. Uh, so uh, a couple of th- really two strong headwinds there for the dairy producer. It's, uh, it's hay acres going down and corn acres going down. We also need to point out, Mike, uh, we're still dealing with an historic drought in the western half of the United States. That really doesn't make a lot of headlines in this story about inflation uh, and food inflation and cost inflation for farmers and ranchers. Uh, the the El or the El Nino event that we're in right now, excuse me, uh, La Nina rather, uh, is uh, expected to last at least through this summer, perhaps to the end of uh, 2022. That is not and- good news, unfortunately. No, it, it is. And a lot of those producers out West are certainly keeping an eye on the sky. Tanner, as you think about all of this in the context of milk production with higher feed costs, higher input prices, uh, broadly speaking, do you expect to see the number of cows take a downturn or will rations change enough that, that milk production, fluid production starts to decline? Well, the last uh, USDA milk production report, we saw a slight uptick in the amount of uh, milk produced per cow, uh, and uh, that's positive news. Kind of what we're what you're seeing there, Mike, is um, farmers are focusing on uh, on increasing productivity, and rather rather than increasing uh, the herd size uh, because the feed cost is so high. Uh, you don't want to increase the number of uh, head to your herd, so uh, perhaps the easiest way to chase higher milk prices is to increase uh, milk per cow. So that is one consequence of what we're seeing here with uh, uh, such high feed costs. Um, to your question about do we ex- do we expect a uh, herd size to increase later this year? I would say uh, we would we would see we would likely see a continuation of what we've seen in recent reports here. And that is a slight month-over-month increase, perhaps, uh, through 2022 uh, as, we, as farmers benefit from record high milk prices. Uh, however, I don't think we're going to get to that level where we're going to exceed last year's herd size. I, that is a really tough story to sell when you've got such strong cost inflation. Okay. And as we think about this cost inflation, speaking about it from the farmer's perspective, of course, we're looking for ways to make that margin back. And as you mentioned, right now, the dairy industry has been able to cope because milk prices have been so elevated. Tanner, my question is on the consumer side, how much more elevated price levels for dairy can this economy support? 
Well, that's the uh, million-dollar question. Uh, what can the consumer bear? And that's a whole other level of analysis, looking at uh, what, what uh, products can consumers trade down to. Uh, once consumers uh, increase uh, the quality of eating or amounts of eating that they do, it's really hard for them to give that up uh, and move down. And as we know, uh, per capita consumption of dairy products uh, almost always uh, goes up long-term with the exception of fluid milk uh, consumption, uh, obviously. I would say here the uh, the U.S. consumer uh, has a lot of money in their pocket. Uh, they uh, they came into uh, 2022 uh, with very strong savings uh, from help from the government, from uh, not traveling. They basically increased the amount of money that they had uh, in their checking account by not spending. And so they've got some momentum there uh, to support on their food budgets. Now, that being said, uh, there are some other uh, anecdotes out there of uh, the U.S. consumer pushing back on cost. Uh, for instance, Netflix. Uh, that made the news. Uh, Netflix lost a lot of subscribers as consumers are trying to cut on cost. Now, there are, they are going to push back on uh, rising food prices, uh, but uh, food is going to be one of those things that not too many people can live without, Mike. Uh, so it's going to be hard to uh, really push back too hard on uh, food consumption. Uh, but what we might see rather specifically in dairy, you'd probably see people push back on more of your luxury items like ice cream, for instance. Uh, people, people need cheese and they want cheese, but they might push back on things like yogurt and ice cream. That certainly makes sense. Tanner, looking out long term, or at least medium term here through this summer, for those medium or smaller sized dairy producers that are really feeling the squeeze and can't match the economies of scale, how can they manage this high input price period? Well, that's a great question. I'd say, first of all, uh, for everyone's uh, individual operation, uh, always remember that it's it's a team environment, right? You need to go talk to the people that are uh, important to uh, the, uh, the the operation. That's going to be people like your accountant. It's going to be like your banker. It's going to be like your co-op. Uh, you need to talk, talk bring the, bring those uh, that brain trust together, if you will, and uh, look at your cost and uh, see where you can be more efficient uh, and where you can see cost production or perhaps where you can increase productivity. Uh, and at the same time, I would say at the same time, you, know, you want to have good partnerships, especially on the feed side. Uh, you want to be able to hedge your feed costs as well as you can. Manage that risk exposure as you are able. Folks, we've been talking to Tanner Emke, dairy economist at the CoBank Knowledge Exchange Division. Tanner, thanks for joining us today. Thanks. Uh, great to be here. And folks, stick with us when we return Dr. Diana Furchgart-Roth, former economist at the U.S. Department of Labor. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. As planting season begins across the country, the American Seed Trade Association reminds farmers to follow the basic steps for seed treatment stewardship. Follow directions on seed container labeling. Eliminate weeds in the field prior to planting. Minimize dust by using advanced seed flow lubricants. Be aware of honeybees and hives located near the field. Ensure that any spilled seeds are removed or covered by soil to protect wildlife and the environment. And remove all treated seed left in equipment. For more information, visit seed-treatment-guide.com or contact your seed dealer. Every Tuesday, we'll be sitting around the table, sponsored by CHS. Join us and learn how CHS creates the vital connections that empower agriculture, helping farmers and ranchers like you succeed. We'll hear from different voices from throughout the cooperative system, sharing stories about how good things happen when people work together. Join us around the table every Tuesday or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. As we look at a market trade so far on this Tuesday, the wheat markets are leading us to the upside in grains and oil seeds with moderate strength throughout corn and soybeans. A lot of that tied to the very poor crop condition ratings of winter wheat released on Monday afternoon. USDA's weekly crop progress report showed ongoing planting delays for the spring crops as well. While the wheat crop continues to deteriorate, seeing some of the lowest condition ratings in over a decade and just one point above the 1996 record low for the date. 
Now also other concerns focus on an early end of the monsoons for the northern half of Brazil's Safrida cord crop as uh, we don't expect a crop disaster, but it's still something to uh, watch very closely. Private exporters reported sales of 132,000 metric tons of soybeans to China for the 22-23 marketing year this morning and 133,000 metric tons of beans to unknown destinations of that total, 78,000 for the current marketing year, 55,000 for the 22-23 marketing year. Overall, though, grain markets remain higher while the cattle and hog markets are mixed here in early trade. Right now, May corn up five and three quarters at eight oh six. December corn up nine seven forty three. May beans up thirteen to three quarters seventeen seventeen at a quarter. November up nine at a quarter fifteen oh three and a half. Bean meal bean oil up moderately. May Chicago wheat up thirty three ten ninety five. May Kansas City wheat up twenty seven eleven seventy two at a quarter. May spring wheat up fifteen at a quarter and eleven ninety two. May hogs down 97, 106.82. April feeder cattle down 2, 156.52. April live cattle 65 higher, 139.75. Crude oil up $1.18 a barrel, 99.72. The Dow Jones down 300 points. This is AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen. Nothing offers an opportunity to bond and give thanks quite like breaking bread together. This is especially true as we welcome our troops back home and keep those who are still stationed overseas in our hearts. Hi, I'm Gary Sinise. Since 2011, the Gary Sinise Foundation's Serving Heroes program has shown gratitude to our nation's defenders and their families by serving up nearly 500,000 hearty classic American meals at travel hubs and military locations. And now, together with our friends at Bob Evans Farms and their Our Farm Salutes program, we will help to provide even more meals nationwide, offering our defenders a taste of home and the feeling of togetherness around the table. Help us show America's gratitude through food and fellowship. Look for the Bob Evans Our Farm Salutes purple packaging at your grocery store and visit ourfarmsalutes.com to learn more. While we can never do enough to support the men and women who serve together, we can make a difference bite by bite. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Thanks for joining us today, ladies and gentlemen, here for AOA. We've been talking a lot this episode about prices. Dwayne mentioned the higher prices we're seeing in both corn and soybeans. Tanner Emke there in segment two discussed what those higher prices for corn and soybeans are doing to margins in the dairy sector. We're seeing similar stories play out across the economy. And earlier today, the World Bank announced that they expect to see energy prices soar 50 and a half percent this year compared to 20. 2021. And that's after, remember, nearly doubling in 2021. They also expect food prices to rise 22.9% this year. And they're anticipating a slight decline next year. But who knows what the future may hold. The challenge is in navigating all of this uncertainty. And joining us today to help make sense of this uncertainty, I'm very excited for our next guest, Dr. Diana Furchgart Roth. She is an adjunct professor of economics at George Washington University and has served quite a little bit in Washington, D.C. She served under several presidential administrations and under George W. Bush. She was the chief economist at the Department of Labor. Dr. Furchgart Roth, thanks for joining us today. Oh, it's great to be with you, Mike, but please, I'm not doctor. I'm professor, but I'm not. I'm definitely not doctor, and you should call me Diana. <laughs> Copy that, Diana. Thank you so much for joining us today. Let's talk about these elevated prices, this inflation level that we're seeing. As you think about where we're at today in 2022, what were some of the key factors that drove us to this point today? That's a great question, Mike, because I believe a lot of it was self-inflicted. Uh, first of all, the economy was growing really fast in the third and fourth quarters of of. Uh, 2020, and there was no reason for the big stimulus package in March of uh, 2021. There was no need for 1.9 trillion of stimulus that paid people to stay home just when employers needed to hire them. 
So that was uh, really a mistake. It contributed to rising wages and rising prices. Second, when President Biden came in, he said that we were going to limit fossil fuel and natural gas production. But fossil fuel and natural gas production make America energy independent. We need more of these right now. And we can see with the price of gasoline up about 40% over the past year, we need more gasoline, not less gasoline. President Biden also ended the Keystone XL pipeline that would have brought crude from Canada to be refined and turned into gasoline by our refineries here in the United States, creating jobs as well as gasoline. So, so the unfortunate thing, Diana, is that all of those things happened. Now here we are dealing with these elevated inflationary levels. How does this end? Where do we go from here? The Fed, whereas last year it said that inflation was transitory, is now focusing on inflation. And the way we get inflation out is by ending the large monetary accommodation that the Fed uh, has been providing. So Chairman Powell says he's going to raise interest rates by half a percentage point in May. And he's going to continue with another series of five interest rate increases, either a quarter of a percentage point or half a percentage point. So he's signaling that the Fed is going to dial down on its monetary accommodation. It would also be helpful if President Biden changed his mind and uh, allowed more energy development here in the United States. That would probably send the price of oil down by about $20 a barrel because of expectations of future low prices. Yes, and we can spend a lot of time on energy and oil production. We'll get to that in just a minute. I want to ask you about those Fed policies. Chairman Powell, as you mentioned, six rate hikes throughout the remainder of the year. Diana, a lot of folks in agriculture remember the 80s and the skyrocketing interest rates that, that really broke a lot of margins. Are the Fed's current plans of six small rate hikes going to be enough to tame inflation, or could we look at interest rates running away? So the problem is we're not looking at interest rates running away. We're looking at inflation running away. And inflation right now is running at 8.5%. Inflation has never been gotten out of the economy without a federal funds rate that is higher than the inflation rate. And even with 50 basis point increases uh, throughout the rest of the year, the federal funds rate is still going to be lower than the inflation rate. So it's not a question of interest rates running away. It's a question is, is the Fed doing enough to tame inflation? And many people, myself included, think that it is not. Could the economy handle a Fed funds rate that was jacked up quickly to that 8% level needed in order to quell inflation? Uh, it's a question of trading off a smaller recession now for a more serious recession later. What's dangerous is letting inflation go untamed and unabated and getting to double digit let, uh, levels. The Fed just has to move firmly enough to get rid of the inflation that is there right now, even if it risks a smaller recession. Because if it leaves it, we'll have a larger recession next year or the year after like we had in the early 1980s when Paul Volcker had to get inflation out of the economy. And interest rates were 15, 16%. When you got a mortgage, it was a 15% rate. That was normal. We cannot go back to those times again. That's why we have to crush inflation now. But it's not just the Fed. The president has to help also. He should not put in place policies that raise uh, wages unnecessarily or artificially. He shouldn't be raising the price of energy artificially with dependence on wind and solar, which do not power all of America's needs. He needs to focus on what we have right under our feet, which is oil and natural gas. We're the largest producer in the world. We're lucky. We need to take advantage of this. 
Indeed we do, Diana Labor. This is an area where you have spent a lot of years of your life working. As you think about the labor policies that have been pursued, we have seen skyrocketing labor costs. We've seen employers unable to fill positions. As you think about how we could tackle this issue prior to the midterm elections here in November, what are some policies you'd like to see come out of the federal government? First of all, we don't need uh, build back better. We don't need to be paying more people to stay home at a time when there are 11 million job openings. So that's one important aspect. Uh, second, we have a lot of infrastructure projects. We don't want to have what's called project labor agreements on those. That's agreements where the state is just allowed to hire unionized labor and is not allowed to hire 87% of the non-unionized firms that pay lower rates. Uh, and then there are other kinds of things also, such as prevailing wage rates for construction projects. The administration is hoping to raise those prevailing wage rates or set them uh, without surveys. If the federal government doesn't act on any of those issues, where do you see labor prices going? Are they just going to continue to move higher here in the short term? There's upward pressure on labor anyway because of inflation. So people are going to want wage raises that keep wage raises that keep up with inflation. We've seen that uh, even though on average, Wages went up by about 5% over the past year with inflation at 8.5. That's still a 3% real drop in wages. So it's quite natural that people are asking for higher raises. And we call this in economics the wage price spiral. Prices go up, then wages want to go up also with them. That's why it's really important to get inflation down so that people can see that their raises are not getting eaten up by inflation. And you mentioned that wage price spiral. Diana, we heard earlier this week, NFIB, an association of small business owners around the country, said another 40% of small businesses are expected to raise hikes 10% during this year. I imagine that's going to continue to get probably mainly uh, filed into the labor category. Is that where these businesses are going to be spending their money? I think it depends on the business. There are some that are more labor intensive than others and others that have more of a shortage of labor than others. For example, we see how we need another 80,000 truckers, for example. Uh, And there are some businesses that are doing uh, a little better. We've seen leisure and hospitality uh, wages rise very much. We've seen wages at the low end rise. It's difficult to get an Uber uh, now here in major cities because the Uber drivers are going off and doing more productive things, higher earning things. So I think it really depends on what industry sector you're in. That certainly makes sense. And as you have talked about a couple times so far on our interview, higher energy prices are hitting everybody. And and that is certainly going to eat into the bottom line. Diana, would you be available to stick around for segment four today? I know you've been traveling and you've got some thoughts on China as we continue to see them battle COVID and look ahead to these electric vehicles. Would you be able to, to stick around with us and carry this conversation on? Oh, sure. It would be a great pleasure, Mike. Always All right, to folks. Be on your show. Well, stay with us then, ladies and gentlemen. We are going to continue to bring this conversation with Diana Furchgart-Roth here, and we're going to be talking when we return about electric vehicles and energy. So stay with us here on AOA. We'll have a lot more conversations to come when we return after this break. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oils. Oils that run smart. 
Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? They've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans, and if left untreated, can lead to death. Unfortunately, less than one in four Americans have much knowledge of this disease that kills more than 25,000 people every year. The good news is that if heart valve disease is treated, patients can recover and live long, happy, and productive lives. But in order to treat heart valve disease, you need to know if you have it. If you or your loved ones are over the age of 65, have been treated with radiation to the chest, have been diagnosed with a heart murmur, or have a history of heart disease, it's time to listen to your heart. Ask your doctor today about screening for heart valve disease. A message brought to you by Heart Valve Voice US. For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org. This is Around the Table, where we explore the benefits of cooperative ownership. Joining us today is Corey Klopaki. Corey is the CHS Agronomy Technical Product Specialist, and we're going to talk about the strategies for managing weeds and protecting crop potential this spring. Corey, thanks for joining us. Rising input prices are on everyone's mind. How can farmers get the most value from crop protection applications this spring? When you look at, you know, the higher input prices and, and supply chain issues, you know, how can we take advantage of that and gain some value from it? I think it, you know, it's going to be really important, especially this spring, to take advantage of the crop protection inputs that we have available to us because we have a lot more options and flexibility in the spring to what we can do. And that's really going to set us up for, you know, the, the end season, hopefully take some pressure off our end season applications by taking advantage of what we have this spring. Corey, what strategies do you recommend for effective burndown control? For burndown control or, or pre-emerge applications, there's lots of good options out there and pre-mixes and, and products we can add in for controlling both emerged weeds and weeds that haven't emerged yet. In a traditional burndown situation, you're probably looking at a no-till type of acre, you know, where weeds might have grown from last fall and early spring. You know, you're going to want to be able to clean up those weeds before you're planting in that instance. The key thing is to make sure you're using a mix that's got up to three sites of action that can help both control the emerged weeds as well as the weeds that are going to be coming around the corner. You know, in a lot of instances, we use tillage, which is a great option as well to control weeds in the spring. But don't forget to put your pre-emerge herbicide down, even if you are using tillage, because it's going to buy you some time before that post-emerge application needs to happen. Well, our thanks to Corey Klopaki, CHS Agronomy Technical Product Specialist. And thanks for joining us around the table. To explore the benefits of cooperative ownership, visit cooperativeownership.com. I get it, slip it, cuff it, check it twice a day. I get it, slip it, cuff it, check it in the morning and before dinner. I get it, slip it, cuff it, check it, and share it with my doctor. Nearly one in two U.S. adults have high blood pressure. That's why it's important to self-monitor your blood pressure in four easy-to-remember steps. It starts with a monitor. Now that I know my blood pressure numbers, I talked with my doctor. We're getting those numbers down. Get it, slip it, cuff it, check it. Talk to doctor now and share it. Be next to talk to your doctor about your blood pressure numbers. Get down with your blood pressure. Self-monitoring is power. Learn more at manageyourbp.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council, the American Heart Association, and the American Medical Association. In partnership with the Office of Minority Health and Health Resources and Services Administration.
Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Thanks for tuning in, ladies and gentlemen. If you're just joining us, we're continuing our discussion from segment three with Professor Diana Furchgart-Roth. You may have seen her columns in Forbes.com and in Tax Notes. She is an economist and has previously served as the chief economist for the U.S. Department of Labor, currently an adjunct professor at George Washington University. Diana, thanks for staying with us here on the show. Oh, it's great to be with you, Mike. Thanks so much for having me on. Well, let's talk about energy prices. As we've seen crude oil prices and gasoline and diesel prices continue to skyrocket. Diana, there's been a push from this administration to use these higher prices as a push to get people to switch to battery electric vehicles. As you look at the world and you think about how this change could impact the economy long term, is this the direction we need to be going? Mike, only about 5% of the cars sold last year in the United States were battery-powered electric. And there are reasons for that. They're more expensive. You have to stop to charge them up every 250 or 300 miles. Uh, it takes half an hour to charge them rather than five minutes to fill up with gasoline. And we're, sometimes they catch fire. So we're not ready technologically for battery-powered vehicles on a wide scale. Of course, there are people who buy them who like them. These are usually people who have garages. They can charge them up in their homes. But there are many people who don't have garages, who live in apartment buildings. Where are they going to charge up these vehicles? So for GM to say in 2035, we're only going to be making battery-powered vehicles. We're not going to make the gasoline-powered ones. That doesn't make any sense at all, and it doesn't accord with the preferences of Americans. It doesn't. And Diana, strategically, it strikes me as a little bit odd considering this oil price move has in some respects been driven by a fight between an oil producer as we switch towards battery powered. I mean, we're not mining lithium much here in this country. We don't have the components to build those batteries. Would we be adding some more risk to our daily life if we did rely on electric vehicles built in China? Mike, we really would. I think that one thing about this Russia-Ukraine war has taught us is that we don't want to be dependent on energy from a foreign power the way Europe is dependent on Russian natural gas. We don't want to be dependent on batteries from China. And the only way of producing batteries economically is to produce them in China or overseas right now. So we want to be dependent on our own energy resources. We're fortunate we are the largest oil and natural gas producer in the entire world. Uh, we can go with hybrid vehicles that make the tank of gasoline stretch a little longer, that recharge through the braking power of the vehicle that don't have to be plugged in. There's lots of things we can do to make our vehicle fleet more efficient, and it's getting more efficient as old cars like mine get retired and new cars uh, get purchased. Yeah, that's the truth. I think I increased the overall efficiency of the fleet when I got rid of my 78 Lincoln Continental. <laughs> Diana, on the, the subject of drilling for more crude, you mentioned we have the world's largest reserves here right underneath our soil, but we have a president and a, an administration that looks warily at fossil fuels. Do you anticipate any more drilling coming even at these elevated prices with this administration in power? It's a difficult question to say. I mean, I'm an economist. I look what, at what makes sense. Of course, it would make sense now with the war in Ukraine, all the big demand for natural gas to speed up the pipeline construction, export LNG to Europe, our friends that need it, uh, and do more oil exploration here in the United States. I, I'm not a politician. I don't know whether uh, President Biden is going to do that, but it makes a lot of sense to be doing that right now. We especially need to be speeding up pipeline construction because a lot of the oil and natural gas in the back in North Dakota is just trapped there because we don't have the pipelines, enough pipelines to get it out to be exported or used in the coasts. I mean, here we have Massachusetts being refueled by tankers from Russia. That makes no sense at all because they can't build a pipeline uh, from the Marcellus Shale to get it up there to New England. And the the economics behind not building the pipeline, have they have they gotten to the point where if it were politically feasible, the economics would follow for pipeline construction? 
Oh, the economics really follow. The economics are there. Pipelines are safe. They're the cheapest way of carrying uh, oil and natural gas. Uh, the only problem is the permitting. And the Federal uh, Energy Regulatory Commission has just slowed the permitting again by saying that you have to look at the environmental effects of the pipeline. That means if the pipeline is going to be used to carry oil that might be made into gasoline and gasoline might cause emissions, then uh, maybe you don't want to build that pipeline. But it makes no sense at all because you have to look at the alternatives. The alternatives are batteries, mining for lithium, which we do not have enough of uh, in the world to create enough batteries, transporting the batteries from China. The electricity to run the batteries has to be made somewhere. It's not going to be made all out of wind and solar. So it's going to cause some emissions. So these are not, yeah. this is not the panacea that people see it as. No, no, I don't think it is. And we'll continue to discuss the, the move of, of transport fuels, I suppose, here on the program as it goes forward. Diana, before we let you go, China, we've seen uh, shutdowns in Shanghai, potentially a shutdown coming in Beijing. Do you see the Chinese economy slowing down here through 2022? Yes, I think everybody, uh, uh, I see it. And more important, the World Bank and the IMF see it as uh, slowing down. And uh, there are quarantines on products that come into China. So those factories have to wait sometimes for chips to South, for South Korea, from South Korea to be able to move forward with their products. So there's major, major problems in China right now. We hope that they can get enough Moderna and Pfizer vaccines to be able to vaccinate all their people rather than uh, relying on the Chinese-made vaccines they have right now, which are not working. Yes, that is the truth. We have been speaking, folks, with Professor Diana Furchgart-Roth, former economist at several places in Washington, D.C., currently a professor at George Washington University. Professor Diana, thank you so much for joining us today. It's great to be with you. Thanks so much for having me on, Mike. And folks, tune in to AOA tomorrow. We'll be speaking with Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist with Stonex. We're going to talk about where this market could be headed. We'll dig in a little bit more on what's happening in the veg oil industry. So tune in tomorrow to AOA. Have a great day, everybody. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. To be the king of the road, you have to fill with the king of diesels. We're talking about Cenex Premium Diesel. It comes with a more complete additive package for a more complete burn. Cenex Roadmaster XL even cleans up and prevents injector fouling to keep your trucks out of the shop and on the road. And typical number two diesel? That's always an option the wrong option. Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. I drive my bus in a busy city. That's why road safety is so important to me. I know that I must slow down and be extra careful when I make a wide turn. Buses need more room than cars. Everyone can help keep our roads safe. Next time you're driving, Remember to give buses plenty of time and space to finish turning before driving ahead. Let's all plan to share the road safely. Learn how at www.sharetheroadsafely.gov.